Hello, and welcome to yet another journal episode of the In Common podcast. My name is Frank van Laarhoven, and you are about to listen to a conversation I had with Landon Yoder and Courtney Hammond-Wagner about a recent IJC publication that is entitled The Promise of Collective Action for Large-Scale Commons Dilemmas, Reflections on Common Pool Resource Theory, that they co-authored together with Kyra Sullivan-Wiley and Gemma Smith. What I, among other things, especially like about the article that we discussed is how it critically tests the boundaries of Eleanor Ostrom's design principles. For many current day problems and challenges, especially those that are more complex and that are panning out at a scale that is larger than that of the common cases that we typically read about, applying the design principles diagnostically might be less relevant than pushing for the building of theory that fits so-called non-canonical commons cases better. Also, if you're new to doing research or writing about it, I advise you to especially listen to the part where Landon and Courtney speak about how a chat during a conference five years ago led to a journey that eventually resulted in the paper that served as the excuse for the talk that you are about to listen to. I learned a lot from talking with uh, Landon and, and Courtney, and I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I have enjoyed having it. Good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are. I'm I'm in Utrecht, the Netherlands. For me, it's afternoon. Uh, Landon, you're in Bloomington. Courtney, you are in Vermont. Yes, Vermont. Well, so great to see you. We're going to talk about your recent publication in the International Journal of the Commons. And in that paper, your proposition is that there is an overemphasis on using diagnostic tools, such as the design principles, uh, in our field of study. And that is the study of situations where uh, short-term individual benefits are pitted against collective long-term costs, situations where groups of people govern a commons. I did a quick, I did a dirty uh, check in the International Journal of the Commons, and it is indeed true that about one-third of all the contributions that we have in our portfolio make some sort of a reference to Ostrom's design principles. And many of these articles they apply the design principles to one or a couple of cases, and indeed mostly in a rather diagnostic way, as in what can we do, what should we do, what must we do uh, to have this case aligning more with the design principle. And the assumption then is that aligning more with the design principle equals uh, more successful outcomes, equals less chance of a collapse, less chance of a tragedy. And you state that too often, institutional analyses apply the design principles as a diagnostic approach to identify uh, symptoms with an assumed known quote-unquote path to a solution rather than to build a broader theoretical understanding of diverse conditions under which collective action can emerge and support sustainable management. You go on to observe that the most uh, prevalent CPRs or common pool resources that have been studied involve resources that represent uh, low supply, high demand systems that are extractable uh, and that rely on group rulemaking about how to set exclusion criteria, how to divide the shared resource pool between authorized users, 
and how to contribute to maintaining, to provisioning the resource pool over time. And you think of what you call canonical CPR systems, and you mentioned pastures, uh, fisheries, uh, forest irrigation systems, and uh, groundwater basins or aquifers. And the diagnostic tools that resulted from the study of such systems are arguably not overly suited for many of the problems and many of the challenges that the world is plagued with today. So you argue that given the kind and the types of environmental challenges that we face today, uh, given that they differ from the ones that the design principles were arguably developed for and based on, we need more emphasis on building theoretical understanding of how collective uh, action can contribute to solving today's large-scale challenges challenges with, with many uh, problems that intersect and interact. That's my reading of the paper, and we'll talk more about uh, the ideas, the reflections, and the propositions that you uh, posit in the paper that serves as the excuse of the conversation that we are having. But first, I would like to uh, to give you a chance, a podium, a platform to, to introduce yourself. So, Landon, why is it that you study this topic? Uh, why did you decide that this is the field that you want to profile yourself in? What is it about the commons and everything commons and the commons beyond that, that that triggers you to do the kind of research that you're doing? Can you talk a little bit about yourself, your affiliation and your journey towards where you uh, you currently are? Yeah, thanks, Frank. Uh, so uh, I am a human environment geographer by training, and I got into this uh, actually by by my PhD is from Indiana University, and so I took um, a course in in Ostrom's theory early on in my PhD in my first semester, and so that really got me excited and interested in this, and then I wanted to apply it to agriculture, and so my dissertation wound up being on uh, a really unusual case in the Florida Everglades where we had a big sugar cane industry uh, where they were actually using a collective uh, system uh, to reduce their phosphorus pollution. And so uh, I, I just got into it early on for that case to try and understand how they seem to cooperate in that system. And I found the whole thing fascinating and incredibly complicated, uh, but that, that's really what led me to that area. So I, I really in, am interested in the sort of institutional dimensions of global change. I would say that would be the kind of the main area that I that I try to study. Um, and I think uh, collective action and uh, social systems are just particularly fascinating. And so I'm interested in applying that to farmers uh, management, their decision making and and more broadly kind of the the rules and structures that that shape what they're how they're how they're operating and how that affects uh, environmental outcomes from farming. Courtney, can I can I turn to you? You you are not only a friend of the podcast. You 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 almost are the podcast. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will have heard you uh, as a host and as a guest. Uh, but can you briefly tell us a little bit about your journey towards the field that this paper is about and that this conversation is about, uh, Courtney? Yeah, I'd love to. And thanks, Frank, for having us and for that great introduction to the paper. That was such a great summary. Um, of what we are, what we were trying to do. So I really appreciate that. So I am an environmental social scientist, and Land and I actually, maybe I'm getting ahead of us a little bit, but we um, met based on similar interests around collective action in agriculture. So I have a similar story with my PhD of coming in and um, 
And I, for me, it was water quality policy in Vermont and New Zealand that drew me into this, um, the role of behavior and decision-making in agricultural landscapes and how that affects this uh, common pool resource of, of water quality depends on how you want to define water quality and the common pool resource, which we could talk about later too. Yep. Um, but, but kind of backtracking a little bit more, I feel like coming out of my undergrad and into my PhD, I kept sort of switching back and forth between social science and natural science. And I found myself really, um, really interested in what types of decisions um, and actions socially shape the, the natural science and the physical surroundings. So I found myself doing um, soil carbon research in the Arctic, and really all I wanted to do was talk to, to people instead of dig soil pits. And so <laughs> that led me kind of back towards, um, this was another multiple turns back and forth, but towards thinking about um, Ostrom's work. And I actually had the opportunity to work with Michael Cox, um, collaborate on some work earlier on. And he actually introduced me to Eleanor Ostrom's work and the idea of the design principles and and so they kind of stuck were stuck in my head. And then I got to agriculture and it seemed like it should fit. And then it sort of didn't. And I didn't know what to do with that. So ah, this that's is, where this, this conversation started. This this is a super nice bridge to my follow-up question. You mentioned um, Ostrom, you mentioned the design principles, you mentioned the fact that it didn't fit. So, so my question, my my question then would be also having read your paper, why did you choose to pick a fight with Alan Rostrom? More in particular, with uh, with the design principles, what what ticked you off? Well, I think it was a it was a process, I and mean, this is a a very challenging paper to write because there are a lot of uh, nuances involved in it. I, I think. Um, you know, we started talking about this paper in uh, in effect probably more than five years ago. So it was a it was a slow slow process of really thinking through it. Uh, I don't. I guess I wouldn't say that we're picking a fight with Ostrom or the design principles, um, but we're actually arguing for how to use them and think through them. And in a way, I think we're arguing what is similar to what other people have, have said in terms of the critique of how they get used, but that if we return to thinking about theory, we might find, sort of refresh ourselves and understanding how collective action actually emerges and gets sustained. And I think one of the th things that stands out to me in our discussions and in the paper is that the design principles work incredibly well for these canonical cases. Uh, and what we're trying to do in the paper is is explain why we think that is, but also why it doesn't then extend to other situations. And so we're thinking about, okay, given that, how do we how do we uh, move forward? And where both of us had our you know initial discussion of this, I think we were in Annapolis at a succinct conference, was we both felt frustrated with, trying to use the design principles and trying to explain collective action in our respective cases because we could see a lot of applicability there were parts of them that really made a lot of sense mm -hmm. uh, but then there were parts that you know were kind of squinting to make them fit and that didn't feel right so 
So that's where the the evolution of this paper or the history of this paper starts is in that uh, dissatisfaction with okay how do we how do we make sense of this in these other cases and where that's ended up is more thinking about well when you have negative externalities or public goods mm -hmm. then the design principles don't seem to explain those situations as well and so there's a lot of kind of nuance in there that we start to try to unpack in that paper. In your think piece, let's let's call it that, you, you take the reader through what you call uh, reflections. There are four of them. I will list them. First, collective action remains an essential pathway, also in larger scale, more complex uh, uh, systems. Second, uh, different motivators and conditions for collective actions uh, must be considered. Third, a return to theory building in CPR theory should address how collective action shapes salience participation and compliance. And fourth, resolving salience, participation and compliance uh, action situations are important for mitigating large-scale environmental commons. And I, I'm going to propose to, to take a somewhat closer look at each one of those four reflections, uh, if, if you don't mind. I'll, I'll start with the first. And that first one is more elaborately, collective action remains an essential pathway for environmental governance at a regional and a global scale. And I'm going to ask you, can you explain why you think that is the case? You, you, you observe that for governance at the regional to the global scale, ambiguity and cost effect uh, in the system results in low problem salience. You mentioned that distributional trade-offs among different stakeholders groups, uh, stakeholder groups affects the motivations and costs of cooperation. And thirdly, also the difficulty of monitoring in such systems leads to high compliance costs and difficulty in assigning responsibilities. So why, in spite of all of these issues, would you still propose to take collective action rather than, for example, voluntary or compulsory approaches as the starting point for building the kind of theory that you argue uh, we need? Yeah. Uh, the So I think it's a fascinating question and one that would benefit from a lot more attention uh, and sort of future studies. I think that for me, one of the things I learned early on when I was talking about my case in the Florida Everglades, I had a question early on about like, well, why don't we just regulate these farmers? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you dig in, I mean, a lot of times uh, we just assume it's sort of axiomatic that if you regulate things, it, it's, it solves the problem. You'll get the outcome you want. You don't have to work too hard to figure out or to, to recognize that, well, that's not always true. You need a high level of self-compliance uh, depending on the type of problem that you have, especially if it's widespread. Mm -hmm. So for non-point source pollution uh, from fertilizer loss in farming, uh, everybody's implicated. To me, a corollary is climate change. Everybody is implicated in some level of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so getting you know imposing penalties on everybody to incentivize the right behavior how you do that could lead to widespread um uh resistance to that and so it's a it's a tension there and i think it it matters really consequentially how we wind up defining collective action and that's mm -hmm. something that's a tension we didn't uh, resolve in our paper we just recognize that that's something that needs more um, much more discussion but so if you, if we want to say either voluntary or compulsory approaches are the main way to go, 
in farming at least, that doesn't work well. We've had voluntary approaches. They have not really moved the needle on solving fertilizer losses and compulsory approaches are widely uh, disliked and they're not politically viable. And so kind of by default, we have this sort of third option that we could turn to mm -hmm. that, that might offer a way forward here in this, this type of case. I'll add just a little bit to that. Um, one thing that, that Landon um, sort of alluded to, I think a little bit with the regulation and voluntary pieces, um, is that often the way that the framing of those approaches or policies come about is really focused on the individual. And yet when we're dealing with social dilemmas um, writ large, you know, regardless of spectrum or scale, often it's the collective attribute of it that is really the motivator and the driver to make change. And so when we reduce these problems to these kind of individual oriented solutions, we lose a great deal of the incentive or motivation to act. And so what we were really inspired by with the, the CPR theory literature um, is that emphasis on the collective and motivating the collective to act socially. And we found that these approaches that exist currently really undermine that when, when put into place. I briefly pause here to ask you for your help. If you like what we're trying to do at the In Common Podcast, you can easily support us by leaving a rating or a review wherever you find your podcasts. This will make our effort more visible and it will help others to find us as well. Also, let us know what you think about the show, for example, on Twitter at InCommonPod. Okay, on with the show. Thank you for that uh, clarification uh, to the both of you. The uh, legitimacy and motivation uh, pops up uh, implicitly, explicitly in the answers that you were giving. At least that's how I'm reading them. And that brings us to the second uh, reflection that is about motivators and condition. The reflection reads, uh, we need to consider different motivators and conditions for collective action in large scale environmental commons, uh, more so than in traditionally considered uh, canonical commons. So you argue that there is a need for decoupling, uh, for the decoupling of the commons dilemma from the canonical cases, these typical cases that are usually studied. Uh, you observe that many scholars have identified CPR's problem, CPR problems based on a typology of, of goods and services framework where high rivalry and costly excludability are the only definitional criteria for classifying uh, a commons dilemma. So can you tell us, can you tell me, can you tell the listeners why and how the definitional criteria of rivalry and excludability would fall short in the analytical sense? In, in your quest to move the needle from diagnosis to theory building, what is it that you propose instead concerning the analysis of motivators and conditions for collective action in large-scale, uh, complex environmental commons? I think one of the main things there is that if we just look at a biophysical system and then think about how people might be using it, we start to th see a lot of things that fit the commons definition based on those, uh, based on the typology of goods uh, framing. 
but that doesn't necessarily do uh, much to explain the motivations that actors have to deal with it. And so this is this was one of the things that we really wrestled with to try and understand the sort of dissatisfaction or the misapplication of the diagnostic approach, which is mm -hmm. you can you can see a lot of ways in which water quality uh, fits the definitional criteria. We have a we have a hard time preventing people from uh, adding excess fertilizer into the system. Uh, and, and, and it creates uh, trade-offs with people who are downstream. So it really fits that definition just fine, but it doesn't explain the motivations. And so when we think about focusing on, the, on explaining the common pool as an economic good, then it draws to the forefront the theory that we're basing this on, on economic rationality, that if there's scarcity and demand over the common pool, then uh, divvying that up, divvying up the pie uh, fairly makes sense. You're going to have a group, everybody wants some of the pie, and then you come up with rules to figure that piece out. Uh, so there are other ways in which uh, that can work for pollution, but it's, it's trickier. It feels less intuitive. Uh, in the Florida Everglades case, what's interesting to me and what really makes a lot of sense here about the the high salience piece is that the farmers in this situation were facing a lawsuit and they agreed to resolve the lawsuit by uh, wanting to keep regulation at a distance. So they agreed that they wanted to meet a, a pollution limit as a group. So they've essentially imposed on themselves a collective limit. So they have this joint liability. So it really uh, mirrors the sort of joint use dynamics or the interdependencies that exists in a lot of the canonical cases to my mind. And then I started to see all these similarities in how they're behaving, how they're working together, how they're trying to uh, explain different uh, ways to do it better. There's a mm -hmm. lot of social pressure to conform to what the group's goals are. Mm -hmm. It just mirrors the system that we would see in these kind of canonical cases better, even though it's a pollution problem. But outside of having this really, uh, you know, uh, an unintentional design because they just are trying to get through this lawsuit. Uh, we don't see that type of system really many other places. Courtney also had a case with regulation, but very different setup and different different results from it. Yeah, so I can, I'll give a little more <clears throat> info on that and try to weave it into what you were just saying, Landon. Um, in terms of thinking about what motivates behavior and how we define a common pool, in my case, so Landon and I have been having this conversation for probably five years about how we should define these things um, in agriculture. And in the case of, um, at least taking Vermont, there was new policy that could be interpreted as, you know, trying to put a cap on pollution. Sorry, it, it does that, but could be interpreted as a type of common pool. This is the, the classic in the U.S., total maximum daily load out of the Clean Water Act that determines how much pollution can come into the water body. And what the regulation does is require farmers to change their behavior in order to meet that regulation. But we have all of the problems in terms of monitoring and compliance to actually change behavior to achieve that. So we could think of it as a common pool resource issue, and yet the farmers across the landscape aren't necessarily experiencing it as that. And so all of a sudden we're in a dynamic of, is it 
Is it a social dilemma? Is it not? Is it just a purely externality problem? And I think where Landon and I and our colleagues, um, Gemma and Kira came to is that maybe that definitional struggle is not the point. Maybe the point is rather trying to think about how people are behaving and what are their motivators in this context that is akin to, we can all agree that there are elements that are akin to a common pool resource. Um, and what can we learn about in these different contexts? How can those differences, instead of being the barriers to moving forward in our questions and in our research, instead help us move forward in our questions and our research and focus on how those differences and motivators might shape behavior in these somewhat messier, maybe, you know, going back to the, the jargon we're using in the paper, less canonical cases. So moving on and also listening to your answers, I see how the reflections uh, built on one another because I hear echoes of uh, of your answer. Uh, I, I, I hear I, I hear them referring or, or already to the third reflection that I'm about to, uh, to 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 talk about, and that third reflection is a return to theory building in CPR theory should address how collective action shapes patterns of salience participation and compliance. I, I very much like how you have identified these three aspects as, as, as something to, to focus on. So salience, the canonical cases, as you call them, uh, salience, in, in these cases, salience is obvious for everyone. People depend on their CPR for livelihoods and, and changes that result from day-to-day -day use uh, are directly visible to everyone. With regard to the more complex and large-scale systems, salience is less obvious. Uh, participation in the canonical case, uh, cases is, is necessary to achieve trust by means of face-to-face uh, -face, uh, interactions that are repeated. And participation in, 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 in more complex, large-scale uh, systems is used for other purposes uh, than for primar primarily creating trust. For example, uh, for, for, for gathering information on problem framing, considering solutions, legitimacy uh, of institutions, etc., Thirdly, compliance in the canonical cases is if, if everyone is dependent uh, on the case, uh, on, on the rules being enforced, then there is a high degree on self-compliance. Uh, and self-compliance, as we have discussed already so far, is less obvious in, in, in more complex, large-scale systems. It's, it's, it's maybe not always a workable option, although I understand it needs to be an ingredient of, of any type of solution. So this distinction between salience or these focuses on, on, on salience, participation and compliance, I, uh, I, I, I applaud, I understand, and I, uh, I, I like it a lot. Can, can you elaborate a bit more how you have come to these conclusions uh, regarding the importance of, of salience, participation and, and, uh, and, and compliance, which are the main ingredients for reflection number three and reflection number four in your proposal to focus more on theory building rather than on uh, diagnosis of cases? I can hop in on this one. So I'll come back to our bone to pick with the design principles, yep. which I agree with Landon. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bone necessarily, uh, but I think we drew a lot of inspiration from them in the sense that we found that when we were applying them to these other cases, that they didn't quite fit, but there are there are threads in them that made a lot of sense to us. You know, if we think about um having uh, you know, a system in which there are very clear boundaries. 
we started to ask ourselves, and we're not the first to do this, so I don't want to claim we're the first to do this, but ask ourselves why might that be the case, that clear boundaries are going to lead to, you know, a more um, engaged and cohesive process. Um, and we started to see some threads of, you know, psychological and sociological theory around what might uh, these these principles as they're defined be fostering amongst a group and group behavior. Um, and so in many rounds of discussions, the, the three things that came up to us were salience and participation and compliance. Um, and we saw these sort of weaving through various aspects of the design principles that seeing the design, seeing the canonical cases as this kind of special case in which the design principles might embody and represent these, this trajectory of salience and participation and compliance. And I struggle a little bit with compliance. Sometimes I'm still playing around with whether it's conformance. You know, if mm -hmm. you don't have a situation where you're actually requiring compliance, conformance, I think, could be just as strong. But I think the other element that we were trying to tackle with this is that in these larger scale commons, you often have this decoupling of the collective action process from the behavior itself that's going to result in the changes on the landscape. So rather than having, you know, if you have a, a small scale fishery or if you have an irrigation network where all of the members who are going to impact the changes in the landscape are able to be present and engaged in the process, you have this coupling between the collective action and the changes themselves. Whereas when you have this broader landscape, it's unlikely that everybody who's you know, behavior is involved or impacted or needs to change is going to be present at the policy process or in the um, in the conversations that move things forward. And so this gave us a way to try to think about how could we draw out concepts that allow us to integrate between the collective action process and the participants or the the behavior or the you know characters that that are involved. Um, that may be on the periphery. So we've been sort of toying with this. How do we bring these concepts to, to a larger scale while not, um, not shutting out, you know, not, not drawing these boundaries that we felt were present in the design principles? So I'm going to get let Landon <laughs> jump in on that now. Yeah, well, I, I think you're covering a lot of the really important stuff here. I, I guess one thing I would just add or sort of return to is, you know, if we think about CPR theory as one theory of group problem solving, then we have a frame of reference that allows us to think about this and sort of build on sort of the nested systems design principle that that is there. But, uh, you know, we have not seen a lot of other uh, subfields really or theories uh, of environmental governance uh, bring the design principles in. So they're well known and they're well liked, and there's a lot there that makes sense. But if we think about some of the some of the aspects that we've talked about in shaping these certain certain situations that are often around livelihoods and scarcity, the group problem solving process there tends to look fairly similar, and the design principles do a really excellent job of explaining why people cooperate. So I think that what we came to, or at least where we're at at this point in time, uh, of thinking about this problem is, okay, how do you make that theory more applicable to these other situations? And I, 
I had turned to, uh, and, and Gemma, uh, one of our co-authors had already done a lot of work in this too, uh, collaborative governance, and seeing a lot of similarities in those different approaches to the actual problem-solving process. But the language is different. The way in which the pieces fit together is different. But there are a lot of parallels. And so that was one of the other aspects that drew us towards thinking about these sort of different action situations that could get solved over time, uh, whether it's you know a, a pollution problem versus a, a common pool problem. And I think, as Courtney's um, alluding to, I mean, the language is is also challenging here. So uh, we went back and forth on salience was pretty settled, but participation and compliance, we're trying to think in terms of uh, just sort of pushing the envelope a little bit of, you know, what does this look like? Uh, and one of those challenges sort of figuring out again, you know, conformance is a good illustration of is what is collective action exactly in these bigger systems because we might just have a lot of cumulative effects of relatively independent behavior that add up and help us solve whatever the problem might be mm -hmm. uh, but that so you're you're there's kind of a gradient of interdependence uh, as well as whether or not people recognize that interdependence that that is part of this that we really haven't totally figured out yet. That, that's great. The fact that you haven't totally uh, figured it out uh, yet. One of the objectives that we have with this podcast is to allow people uh, uh, a peek behind the scenes. And from your answer, I'm, 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 I'm sensing uh, a bit of a struggle. Uh, language, is it compliance? Is it conformity? What if what is collective action? We're figuring things out. We're still working on it. That, that's, that's great. Maybe also in particular for, for young scholars who, who might read the paper and think, oh, this is really smooth. It's well-structured. It's convincing. I'm buying into it. I believe these guys. And when I hear them talking about it in a podcast, they're super eloquent and I'm, they're even more convincing. But, but, but the real story is, is, is messy. You, you mentioned that uh, the two of you met I think five years ago at a conference and you started talking. I'm sure that the first talks about this weren't as well-structured, convincing and eloquent as it is today. Uh, you worked with uh, with two other co-authors, Kira and, uh, and, and, and Gemma, I think. Uh, can, can, you, can you give us a little bit of the nitty gritty and the messiness of the process that led from your first conversation five years ago to where you are at now, just to to, to allow young scholars, uh, wannabe scholars, uh, a peek behind the scenes and, and give them a taste of what it's really like to work on a paper like this. I would be happy to, because I think this has been one of the best collaborative processes that I've been in. And it's also been one of the most challenging, I think, and at times frustrating. So we, Landon and I met at, as you mentioned, the Sync conference, I think it's the Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center in, in Annapolis at a, at a conference. And we just noticed these similarities between these, these questions we were asking. So then we put together a panel for the um, workshop on the workshop, the WOW conference. And um, in Bloomington, uh, maybe four or five, four years ago now. And out of that, we met Gemma and then we just started talking. And we just started talking about these ideas and like, why are realized that we had each been wrangling with this questions of how do these fit? And so we decided and then brought Kira in that we were just gonna meet every week for an hour and we were gonna talk through these ideas. And then it 
then we, we knew we wanted to write a paper on it, but we didn't know what shape that paper was going to take and where we were going to end. Initially, it was like, maybe this is just going to be a critique and we're not going to we're not going to find any resolution because it took us probably, I would say, 30 to 40 meetings before we even had a vision of what the resolution for us in this conversation was going to be. And so we were really lucky to have a group of people that were willing to show up every week and were okay if I was 20 minutes late because something came up with my kids <laughs> and then we're still willing to, you know, show up and have the conversation and to engage with the ideas over and over and over again and and move past the frustration of when we hit stopping points. So we finally kind of coalesced into a structure um, and Landon led the writing, which was really awesome. Um, and we each kind of came in and supported that as well. So this was truly collaborative and a really cool thing to be involved in where you're starting and you, you don't know where it's gonna end. And there's just sort of faith and trust in the collaborators that we're gonna all be in this journey together. So I'm hoping yeah. that that journey will continue, but that's where we, this is the, the intermediate outcome that we have. Yeah, I, I would just echo, I, I also really enjoyed uh, the process and I thought the working with uh, Courtney, Kira and Gemma was really excellent. And I think, you know, one of the things that stands out to me or just I, I reflect on and kind of marvel on is I, I have no idea whose ideas are whose at the end of this process. Like everybody just contributed so so thoroughly to the process and it was just very enjoyable and interesting, although it was definitely frustrating because, I mean, there's so many pieces in here that were difficult to sort out. I think one of the things I noticed a lot was we started I think we started with what wound up being reflection two a lot, which was this decoupling aspect and mm -hmm. recognizing for ourselves that uh, the definitional criteria tended to be where where the sticking point was for these environmental uh, bads or these pollution problems was very helpful for us to then start to see some of the other pieces that then came together eventually. Um, but it was... It was definitely a challenging process to sort through why does it seem like it works, but then what exactly doesn't work well and how do we how do we reconcile that we still think it should work? Uh, because it's, there are pieces in there that are so intuitive um, for group problem solving. Uh, and you know, as we've talked about some of these other pieces, I think we still need collective action uh, to be able to solve large-scale environmental problems. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm so glad I uh, I asked this uh, this questions. It's uh, it's very insightful, and 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 the 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 collaborative effort between the four of you, this this form of collective action. I'm sure that that salience participation and compliance played a big a big role in making it uh, the, the the success that it is. We're not going to do justice to all the details uh, that are hidden and, and in, in, in the actual paper. So I hope that uh, listeners will go running to our website and download the paper and read it uh, after having listened to, uh, to, to the full episode. But I, I always uh, end up with a question that at first sight, I thought wouldn't apply as much to this particular article as it's a review article and it's an article with a plea for more theory building. But what the heck, I'm going to ask you anyway. So, so what can actual real day-to-day real-life commoners take away from your work? If I'm a commoner, 
in whatever commons type situation in, in one of those large scale complex uh, systems. I, I, I have read the paper. I've listened to this podcast. What's the first thing that I should be doing based on your lessons learned on your recommendations? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and thank you for asking it, Frank. Uh, I think people are who are practitioners or in their own community are often building or doing theory all the time. You know, every, every one of us has kind of our intuitive uh, thoughts on what works and what doesn't. And I, I think that that's extremely important. So if you're in your local community and you have an understanding of the relationships that are there, you probably have a good understanding of what motivates people and what uh, discourages people. And while we might get stuck in our local communities in that we may not be able to overcome some of those barriers, we could still diagnose the problem and we can still contribute to theory building by recognizing what we think would work and mm -hmm. testing that out and then sharing that experience with other people. So I think I think it's highly relevant to, to commoners everywhere. I'll just add to that that I I totally agree. And I also think that this idea of salience and participation and compliance is probably much more um, like front of mind and intuitive for practitioners and for commoners. They're already doing this and solving these problems. You know, a lot of what um, work on the ground in practice, whether, you know, in the, in the case of agriculture, it might be extension officials, it might be, you know, conservationists. Um, they're these ideas of how do we get the word out? How do we make this issue known? How do we build the salience around it? How do we get people to come participate, put their ideas in? And then how do we get changed? Like that's the whole meat, I feel like, of a lot of this on the ground work in commons. And so I actually see this as a really nice way to hopefully moving forward, start to build some theory in practice, given that a lot of the answers for how we might move from salience to participation to compliance that don't fit the design principles are already probably being solved out in the real world. And that we can draw from cases and from examples of work with practitioners to better understand how they're solving these issues of moving from salience to participation to compliance um, in a way that lets us build theory around that further um, and not be kind of stuck in the structure of the design principles as these building blocks. You know, there's a lot of innovation that's happening on the ground. And hopefully this is a way we could build some theory around that as well as add language and ideas of moving along the spectrum from salience to partic participation to compliance that I think intuitively commoners are already doing. Well, thank you so much for pointing that out. I had uh, I had initially taken your piece as an invitation to uh, ivory tower academics to uh, to build theory but of course we all make mental models or whatever it is that you want to call it in our day-to-day -day decisions also when functioning in a commons-like situation so thank you for for making that click for me i didn't come to that conclusion myself with that i'm afraid our conversation comes to an end so i'm going to end this conversation with a big thank you to you both landon and courtney it was uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you and i've learned a lot uh, thank you Thank you, you. Know, and thank you. This was uh, really, really fun to be a part of, and we really appreciate it. So this was another episode of the uh, journal episode series of the In Common podcast. 
We produce these episodes for students of the Commons that range from seasoned scholars to early career or wannabe researchers. To offer them a peek behind the scenes of research, to allow them to appreciate both the nitty gritty, the messy reality that you don't get to see in the published version of a paper. We also make these episodes for commoners, for practitioners that may not have the time patience or the stomach to work themselves through 20 pages worth of dense jargon laden research papers and of course we make these episodes for you thank you for listening and i really hope you have enjoyed it you can find more episodes as well as our blog on the website in commonpodcast.org and tell us what you think about the episode or about the show you can do that on twitter at InCommonPod. And of course, if you like us, leave a rating or a review wherever you find your podcasts. And this will help others to find us as well. The article that we discussed today can be found, can be downloaded for free at thecommonsjournal.org. The International Journal of the Commons is a community-owned and operated open access platform for high-quality peer-reviewed commons research content. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons.